The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Welcome to Heritage Christian Fellowship. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage, and we're really glad that you chose to join us and, and worship with us this morning. We, uh, we have been, for as many months, studying through the book of Hebrews, and we'll continue that study beginning in the middle of March. But for the next four weeks, we decided to pause for a little bit. We kind of have made it a bit of a tradition over the last three years to take a time every uh, winter to, to take a break from whatever book we're, we're teaching through and to lean into an area of discipleship sort of topically uh, as a church. We've identified these eight areas of discipleship, uh, eight markers of a disciple. And so we, we try to strategically be very thoughtful in how we, we lean in and, and provide teaching in some of these different areas of discipleship. And so we're going to actually be today in the book of Genesis. We're going to be for the next four weeks in the books of Genesis, looking at uh, in the book of Genesis, looking at the, the the family generations of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So we'll be actually today in Genesis chapter twelve. Before I before I get there, I just I, I was chatting with Pastor Aaron earlier, and and I I don't know how many of you are following the news uh, about uh, something that's taking place at Asbury University. Have you guys seen this? Yeah, it's very interesting, right? And if I can be honest, like for me, I've been, I've been around church culture enough. I get suspicious when I see words like revival being used. I, I'm, I'm, I tend to be uh, uh, cautious. And, and, and if I can just be really honest, when I first saw news of what's happening in Asbury uh, coming across the, the, the news pages that I read, I was skeptical. And, I, and, and, I, and I, again, I, and I didn't have probably the best heart. Because I've just seen things hijacked in the name of Jesus over the course of my life as a pastor. And it, it just gets just, just frustrating for me a little bit. And so anyways, I, I ended up doing a little bit of research this week. Just read some different articles. And I read a, a, a wonderful opinion piece that a, a professor at Asbury Seminary wrote concerning what's happening at Asbury. For those of you that are aware, there's what people are calling a revival taking place on the campus of Asbury uh, University has been for about 10 or 12 days. And, and now people from all over the country and even the world are kind of gathering at this campus to worship and to come before the Lord. And, and I could talk all day long about what is a revival, what is not a revival, how we could critique this. But then I thought, why is my heart so critical towards this? Why am I so suspicious? Um, and I, I kind of rebuked myself a little bit. And I read this, uh, this opinion piece by this seminary professor, and, and he, he, he voiced all the concerns I have when, I, when this sort of thing comes across my news feed. Um, but he said, you know, what I see as a seminary professor, and I see these students gathered in this chapel, I see students who are concerned chiefly with the holiness of God. And I thought that was a really awesome thing to read. Students who want to see Christ exalted, who are bowed before our holy God, want to see him made much of, not themselves, not their university, not their chapel. They don't want to make it about them. That encouraged me. And I thought, you know, I have two kids in college. My youngest daughter is a senior. She'll be in college next year. I'll have three kids in college. If you have extra money, you can always throw it my way. Uh, <laughs> and I thought, is there a better generation in our midst that needs to, to stand before the holiness of God? I thought of my kids. My kids were born uh, post 9-11. My daughter born right before 9-11, but my other two kids born post 9-11. A lot of these young men and women in college were born post 9-11, a world that, that you and I, have, those of us that are older, have experienced the world they know nothing of. They were born uh, as the Wi-Fi generation, a, a Wi-Fi in their phone, that, uh, an Apple uh, iPhone in their hand that promises to give them connected to the world and give them access to all truth, when in actuality this little device in their phone has led to utter loneliness and access to all sorts of foolishness. We, we have a generation that's confused about what their identity is. We have a generation, the Gen Z, the, the, it's the first post-Christian generation in American history. 
they live in a, a dark world, and they've been raised in a, in a dark time. They're the pandemic generation. They had their high school taken from them because of that. And, and I was talking to my brother about it this week, and I thought, you know, the darker the world gets, the brighter the light of the gospel shines. The more unholy our world gets. We live in a world where pop culture celebrates Satan. Celebrates it. Not hidden. And this is the culture within which this college generation is being raised. How awesome. If young men and women across the country are bowing down before a holy God and worshiping him, and he's sparking revival in their hearts to, to come to him in faith, to be sent by him for his glory. So rather than being a cynical jerk, Paul, why don't we join in asking God to bring revival to our college campuses? Would you join me? Yeah. God, I, I, I'm hesitant to even use the word revival because you decide what a revival is, not me. It's an outpouring of your spirit. It's an activity that you are responsible for and have control over, God. Help us as your servants to be faithful, to be dutiful, to be surrendered, to be bowed in reverence before your holiness, God. I pray for Asbury University and other campuses across the country. God, I boldly pray for, for Southern Oregon University, God. Would a move of your spirit pour out on these college campuses, God? Would you awaken in the heart of this generation, this emerging generation, a desire for your holiness, a desire for the gospel, God? I pray that the light and the truth, the penetrating, transforming, world-changing reality of the gospel would shine so brightly, God, that, that men and women, young boys and girls, people who are caught up in the dark things of this world would turn to you, would confess and repent and find life in your name. God, we ask that you, that you, God, would pour out your spirit in a new and fresh way in our midst. You would bring revival to the hearts and minds of people, to communities, and to entire generations for the praise and to the glory of your name. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And would you please just, I've committed, I was talking with my brother, I've committed to just keep praying for Revival. I mean, that sounds sensational to say that, but I think we need to pray for revival. And would you just join me in that church and pray for that in our midst and on our campuses? All right. You know, I was thinking about this, this sermon series we're starting and, and we're talking about today. We're going to be looking at the generations of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And of course, it, it leads you to think about your own family and your own generation. And I'm, I'm thinking about me as a kid, and, and, I, and I remember... I had this uh, sort of starry-eyed perspective of my own dad. My dad, as you have heard me tell you in the past, was a logger, was this, was this chiseled, um, powerful, like Paul Bunyan-esque figure of a man. And he was the strongest, the biggest, the most fierce human I could ever imagine as a child. And I wanted to be just like him. I fixed my eyes on my dad. He was a logger and he, he, he was a faller, so he, he cut down trees with a chainsaw for 39 years. And I wanted to be just like my dad. My parents got me a little play chainsaw when I was a kid. And I, would, I wanted cork boots as like a seven-year-old. And I would pull my pants up like my dad. And I wanted my mom to cut the bottoms of my pants off like my dad. I wanted suspenders like my dad. I would be in the backyard with that little chainsaw pretending to cut down trees. And I admired him. I, I, my eyes were fixed on him. And uh, I, my dad would take me to work with him every now and again. I might have shared this with you in the past, but I would go to work with my dad, which was the coolest thing ever. You know, I'd stand by my dad's side, and he'd fall a tree, and I'd watch it fall. And he'd reach around and hand me his log tape. And he'd get up on the log with his cork boots and his bold legs, and he'd walk down the log, and I'd watch him limb the tree. And I would hold the end of that, that tape measure to the bottom of the log, and I'd watch my dad a million times walk, and he'd measure, and, and he'd look at me, and I'd let go of the tape measure, and he'd kick it up, and it'd come to his side, and he'd stick it back in the log and keep limbing. And I just, I just loved my dad. And we'd be in the mountains, uh, you know, at his job site, and he'd be like, you know, 
why don't you, here, he threw me a flannel shirt and he put a flannel shirt over my shoulders. He's like, why don't you sit up on your knees? So I get on the bench seat of his old Dodge pickup truck and I'd sit up on my knees. And he said, roll the window down. And I roll the window down and say, here, put my hard hat on. I put his hard hat on. He takes some dirt from the bottom of the, of the, of the floorboard and he rubs some dirt on my face. And he'd take a, an old cigarette out of the ashtray, he'd hand me a cigarette. And he'd say, put your arm out the window. <laughs> put that cigarette in your mouth. And people might just think you're my new logging partner. And I would sit like this in that truck with a cigarette out of my mouth. My dad would pull up and talk to guys, and I wouldn't say a word. I'm like, and we get done, and my dad would be like, yeah, I'm pretty sure they thought you were my logging partner, son. <laughs> I wanted to be like my dad. You know, I looked to him, and, and uh, like many of us, the impact of my father on my life is profound. Good, bad, and ugly. You've learned from others. Your understanding of manhood or womanhood is rooted in your family. The way you approach conflict is informed by your family. The way you operate within relationships, marriage, parenthood, siblings, friends, etc. has been radically impacted by what you saw modeled or you didn't see modeled. The way, you view, the way you view finances, the way you process grief, the way you deal with conflict, the way you worship, the way you view and interpret and understand the world around you has been significantly and profoundly impacted by the family from which you originate and the culture from which you come. This is a discipleship issue for us. When we come to Christ, what determines our new identity is no longer the blood of our biological family, but the blood of Jesus. It's a radical new beginning. And so the main idea that I want to just try to unpack as we look at Genesis today is simply this. This is what I wanted, I'm trying to convince you of today. Is the blessings, the sins, and struggles of my family of origin and culture profoundly affect who I am today, good, bad, and ugly. The blessings, the sins, and the struggles of my family of origin and, and culture profoundly affect who I am today. The problem is... For me, and for a, one, someone who's been walking with Jesus for a lot of years, is when I look at the church and when I look at my own life is in discipleship, and when I, when I look at the, 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 those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ, I don't see a huge difference in our culture. The church today doesn't look all that different from our unchurched neighbors and friends. It seems the praying and the, the reading of our Bibles and the attending of worship services has, has failed on some level to bring radical transformation. And I, I just find myself both as a disciple and as a shepherd, asking myself, why is that? I mean, could it be that our discipleship journey, that along the way we, we've never really learned to identify and put off the sinful patterns and, and the sinful tendencies that we've learned from, from our families and from our upbringings and from the families from which we come? Could it be that our discipleship journey, that, that, that in this journey with Jesus that we haven't prioritized intentional time to relearn how to live now as a member of the family of Jesus? That we still operate on autopilot as a family of our biological origins. And so, so you might be asking, so why are, we, why are we doing this? Why are we taking a break from Hebrews to talk about this? Well, I'll tell you why. You know, we've, we've been working for, for two and a half years very hard as a church at trying to really identify very clearly what is a disciple of Jesus Christ and how do we make them. I know it's very easy in the church to say we make disciples, but we... My experience was for 22 years being in church ministry, we said that, but we never really defined what a disciple was and how we were going to really put our hand as a church to journeying towards this vision of discipleship. And so, you know, those of you that have been around, you know this language. We, we, we define a disciple at Heritage as someone who has faith in Jesus, who is growing in the likeness of Jesus, and who's leading others to follow Jesus. And so we think that's what a disciple is. And so then we've, we've even identified eight markers of a disciple that are biblical markers, but we've tried to put some language to this to help us think about discipleship as a church. 
Last fall, we did a series going through these eight markers of discipleship. We, we believe that a disciple of Jesus Christ models God-glorifying stewardship. We believe that a disciple of Jesus Christ has authentic relationships marked by love, that they have a gospel purity and they hold to mature doctrine. We believe that disciples of Jesus exemplify a missional lifestyle. They have authentic worship in their life marked by relationship with God and others. We, we believe that disciples of Jesus should have a godly character uh, informed and, and shaped by the, by the Spirit of God at work in us. We believe that disciples should have a willing submission to God in every area of their life. And, and eighthly, we believe that a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be emotionally mature. We believe that it's impossible to be both spiritually mature and emotionally immature at the same time. For some reason, we, we, we struggle, and I know I have in the past, and we as a church in general, we struggle to see emotional health as something that's a part of our discipleship journey. I heard someone write this week, that, uh, I read someone write this week that it, it's impossible to help people break free from their past apart from understanding the families in which they grew up. Unless we understand the power of the past, unless we understand the power the past exerts on who we are in the present, we will inevitably replicate those patterns in relationships with and beyond the church. And so for the next four weeks, we just want to take a look at the book of Genesis. We want to look at the family of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And my hope is we look at these generations, both the promises of God, the blessings of God, and the str struggles and sins that were exemplified in these generations. As we look at this from a, from a kind of a 30,000-foot view, my hope is that we will see from Scripture how the blessings and sins of your family profoundly impact who you are today. And so I just want to be honest up front. I, I recognize that, that for some a discussion in church on emotional health doesn't feel like a biblical discussion. We, for some reason, we can think about all these other areas as being a part of discipleship. When we talk about our emotional life, it feels like, no, 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 that's over here. And, I, I, and, and my spiritual life is over here. My, my, my emotional life and my spiritual life aren't to mingle. So I recognize that that's how some of us think. And, and, I, and I know that also there's, there, it's, it's possible to get off the rails and, and turn church into a counseling session. That's not what we're trying to do. So I recognize there's some hesitations and there might be a lightning rod attached to this conversation. And, and I want to uh, encourage you to please not check out, to, to, to engage over the next four weeks. And if you have concerns or thoughts, man, I would be honored to sit down with you and talk with you and process the things we're going to be talking about over the next four weeks. I'm not a therapist. It's not a counseling session. I'm a preacher. I'm going to preach forth the words of God. I believe there's a place in the life of the Christian for godly counseling. The scriptures would affirm that. As my part of discipleship along the way, I, I have had several seasons in my life as a follower of Jesus where discipleship has, has taken on a, a dimension of Christian counseling, and I'm grateful for it. God has used amazing Christian counselors in my life to help unearth some things that I needed unearthed. And expose light to some things that needed light exposed to them. To bring the gospel to bear in areas where I didn't know how to bring the gospel to bear. So I'm not a counselor. This is not an exercise in self-actualization. I'm not encouraging anybody. This is not going to become a blame game, blaming our families. Our, the gospel is our only hope. And that's the framework that we approach today's teaching. And the teaching for the rest of this series. And so as you just think about your life... I think just to kind of prepare ourselves for, for the next four weeks, ask yourself this question. What do I do when I come to realize that there's an ongoing area of sin in my life? What do I do when I come to realize there's an ongoing area of sin in my life that's creating division, pain, trouble, 
in my own life and with those I love? How do I address these issues in myself or in others in a God-glorifying way or in a biblical way? How do I draw boundaries, confront sin, walk in repentance in a way that's biblical? Or maybe another question is, how do you, as a member of the family of God, have an open and honest dialogue with your brothers and sisters in Christ when you're confronting, addressing, or working through a sin issue or a struggle of some form? How do we have those hard conversations in love with one another? Or how do I, as a member of the family of God, receive those conversations? How do I receive feedback or critique or honest dialogue from a brother or sister in Christ when they're confronting or addressing a sin issue in my own life? So, if you would, turn to Genesis 12. We're going to be in chapter... Or chapter 12, we're going to just... We're going we're to settle down into the story of Abraham. We're going to look at one little scene verses 10 through 20 in Genesis 12. As you're turning there, let me kind of remind you of the, the story arc of Abram's or Abraham's life. I'll call him, though his name was Abram in our text, we're going to refer to him throughout today as Abraham. That's eventually what his name was changed to. And so what's the story of Abraham? Many of you know the, the story of Abraham. He was a guy in Genesis 12, a normal guy who was living in a polytheistic uh, uh, monothe- or a poly- yeah, a polytheistic culture, a kind of a pantheist culture where they worshiped different entities. He probably worshiped the moon god or something. And then God spoke to Abraham and said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Uh, and you, through all, all, the, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through this nation. The only problem was that Abraham had no kids and he was 75 years old and his wife was 65. And they're like, okay, we'll see what God does. But there's this great promise. God tells Abraham to go to this land. So Abraham goes to this new land that God tells him to go. It's an exercise in tremendous faith in the first nine verses of chapter 12. And then inexplicably in, chapter, in, chapter, or in verse 10 of chapter 12, where we're going to be today, there's a, there's, a, there's a famine. And so then without consulting God, Abraham goes down to Egypt to survive the famine. And when he gets there, he recognizes his wife is very attractive. And so he tells his wife to pretend to be his brother, tell everybody else, that, that she is his sister, rather, tell everybody else that they're brother and sister so that he can self-protect. And so we see Abraham already, like minutes after this promise of God is spoken over him, we see him resorting to deception and to lying and to self-protection. God in his grace intervenes and, and, and Sarah is spared. And then you just watch the story of Abraham unfold over these many chapters. And he's navigating the relationship with his nephew Lot. And, and then in chapter 15, God, uh, God uh, institutes a blood covenant with Abraham in this, in this compelling scene. And we read in, and I think it's Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed in the Lord. Even though he's son, struggling and he's sinning, he's still a person of promise and he believes in the Lord. And right after this amazing kind of blood covenant with God in, in the next chapter, Sarah concocts this idea, hey, we're getting old. God's never going to give us a child. Go ahead and, and sleep with my maidservant, and we're going to create our own illegitimate child. That, and we're going to, in our own way, we're going to fulfill the promise of God because we don't really trust him to do what he said he's going to do. And so weak, lying, self-protection. We see another failure in Abraham's life. He lays with Hagar. She becomes pregnant. And then in the very next chapter, God ratifies the covenant with Abraham through, through, through circumcision in, in chapter 17 of Genesis. And God reaffirms the promise of Abraham. It's incredible. Right on the heels of sin. And then the promise of, Ab- of Isaac's birth. And then we see Abraham interceding for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We see him doing incredible things. He's listening. Uh, uh, God listens to Abraham as he, as he prays for this city. But then in Genesis chapter 20, after all these amazing encounters with God, they, they, they come in contact with this Philistine king named Abimelech. And what does Abraham do again? Hey, tell the king that you're my sister. 
He resorts to deception and lying and self-protection again after all this activity of God that he has seen. It's crazy. And then after 25 years, Isaac is born. Abraham's 100 years old. Sarah's 90. Abraham signs a treaty with Abimelech. And then in uh, chapter 22 of Genesis, we were actually in it last week when we were teaching through, through Hebrews 6. It's this incredible moment. It's, the, it's a defining moment of Abraham's life. God says, go to this mountain. Sacrifice your son, your only son. The son of the promise, the, the, the seed of the promise, you're going to sacrifice him. And, 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 and you're expecting to see deception and lying and self-protection, but you don't. You see Abraham being faithful and God spares his son, provides a ram. It's this beautiful moment. And then Sarah dies and Abraham's son Isaac gets married to Rebecca and Abraham dies. It's an incredible story. As you engage in the story of this family in the book of Genesis, when you especially look ahead at Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob and Jacob's many sons, uh, it's evident that both the blessings and the sins pass on from one generation to the next. We see them repeated again and again. So let's look at this one scenario. Genesis 12, 10 through 20. <laughs> now there was a famine in the land, so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land, and he was about to enter Egypt. He said to Sarai, his wife, I, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. See what he did there? When Abraham, or when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the prince the princes of Pharaoh saw her. They praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram, and he said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Well-known story. As I look at that story, just very briefly, I see, I see three major movements. See in verses 10 through 13, we see Adam distrusting God and resorting to scheming. I heard one author call this a faith lapse in Abram, or Abraham. Here's what, here's what one theologian writes. Listen to this. Concerning Abraham's decision to go to Egypt. Abraham did the natural thing. And herein lies the problem. There's no mention that he sought God's will in the matter. The famine had created the, the fear of starvation. And Abram then instinctively moved to allay his fear without reverence to God's will. Given what then befell him in Egypt, it's apparent that if he had solicited God's will, the story would have been quite different. Abraham's going to Egypt was not so much an intentional sin as it was a reflexive turn to his own devices. He did not deny God. He simply forgot how great God is. I think that's exactly right. And it's on the heels of this incredible promise from God. It's right on the heels of the initial promise. And then he just turns around, cancels out the voice of God, slips into autopilot, and becomes this deceptive, self-protecting liar. 
in Egypt. And so what we see in verses 14 through 16 is we see Sarah and Abraham, or we see Sarah and Pharaoh suffering because of Abraham's deception. I mean, Sarah, can you imagine? We were talking about this as a staff. Kathy Johnson was in our, was in our, our, our staff meeting as we were talking about this scenario. And it's like, can you imagine the, the fear she must have felt? To have her husband just release her over to a bunch of men who he, they don't even know? To, 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 pull, to uncover her and put her in a position where she was vulnerable and exposed for his own self-protection? How horrible. And so she suffers. Can you imagine the emotional trauma of being abandoned by her husband? And then, quite literally, because of the plagues that God sends, Pharaoh and all of his people suffer, all because of Abraham's self-preserving, deceptive behavior, because of his lies. And then in verse 17 through 20, we see the third movement in this little scenario. We see God intervening and bailing Abraham out, which is his grace. When Abraham did the natural thing, when he, when he operated on autopilot, when he reflexively relied on his own devices, he fell into sin and others got hurt. In fact, I was reading through the story of Abraham this last week and kind of just taking notes in my journal, and I noticed in those three big scenes of Abraham's greatest failures, uncovering his wife to Pharaoh, laying with Hagar, and uncovering his wife to Abimelech, in all three of those scenarios, he never interacted with God. There's no interaction with God. There's no speaking of God. It's Abraham on autopilot doing what comes natural to him, which is deception and lying and self-protection. When you look at the moments of his greatest obedience and his greatest faith, there's always an intentional engagement with God in Abraham's life. There's a listening to God. There's a responding to God's spoken word. There's a responding in faith to God's, re- God's revealed word. So, so as we look at him, it's like, where did he learn this? Like, what, what, what kind of guy would do this? Like, who, where did he learn this deception, this lying, this uncovering? Well, we don't know much about his immediate family. We don't know anything substantively about them. But you know what? Ultimately, he learned it from the father of humankind, Adam. Adam was the first to uncover his wife. Adam was the first to hide his sin. He was the first to seek self-preservation. He was the first to distrust the word of God. The blessings given to Abraham because of his obedience passed from generation to generation to his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren. But at the same time, we also observe a pattern in Abraham's life of sin and brokenness that is also transmitted through generations and generations. You see, the blessings, the sins and struggles of my family of origin and culture profoundly affect who I am today. It's true, the same is true for you. The blessings and sins and struggles of your family of origin and your culture profoundly affect who you are today. And so that's the first thing I would encourage you to write down if you're a note taker. It's just simply a reiteration of what I just said. The family and culture from which I come has profound impact on the person I've become. Just a simple truth. It's an observational reality. The family and culture from which I come has profound impact on the person I've become. Let's look at Abraham generationally, okay? There's a pattern of lying in his life, but what about the next generations, right? So Abraham lied twice about Sarah. Isaac and Rebekah's marriage was characterized by lies. Just do that reading sometime. Jacob lied to almost everybody. His name literally means deceiver. Ten of Jacob's children lied about, the, 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 about faking the murder and the death of their brother Joseph. They even faked the funeral and kept the family secret for over a decade. Then there's another sin of favoritism. I didn't mention that. Abraham favored Ishmael. Isaac favors Esau. Jacob favors Joseph and then later Benjamin. 
We have generational sins of brothers being cut off from one another in this first family or this Abrahamic family. Isaac and Ishmael were cut off from one another. Jacob fled his brother Esau, was completely cut off for years. Joseph was cut off from his ten brothers for more than a decade. We have marriages that are in wreck in these generations. I mean, Abraham had a child out of wedlock with Hagar. Isaac had a terrible relationship with Rebekah. She was always scheming behind his back. It was awful. Jacob had two wives and two concubines. So we see it being repeated. And for some of you, I know this might be a new idea that, that, that both the blessings and sins of your family impact who you are today. And, and I know that might be a, a, a stretch to think about that. And just bear with me. For some of you, it's maybe even a demoralizing reality because you look at your life and you say, yeah, I have labored my entire life under the crushing weight of generational sin. I know, Paul. The same thing my father struggled with, my grandfather struggled with, I struggle with. I believe me, I'm, I'm full aware of generational sin patterns. There's some of you in here who've, who've experienced victory in these areas. God has used you to break a generational sin pattern. He has freed you from the sins and struggles of your family of origin to the glory and to the praise of God. And for some of you, God has been mightily gracious. And you look at your families, you're like, yeah, it wasn't perfect, but you know what? God was very gracious and kind in the family he let me be raised in. Hallelujah. By his grace, you don't bear significant wounds and sin struggles from your family of origin. For me, when I think about when I first started walking with Jesus, when I first started walking with the Lord, I, I, I knew and I was taught rightly uh, early on that, that I was a new creation in Christ, that my sins had been nailed to the cross. I had been taught that, that I was born into the family of God, that my identity was now in Christ, in Christ alone. I knew that my sins and my struggles were under the blood of Jesus. I was all true to the praise and glory of God. And that takes us to the second thing I want you to write down. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives you and me a new family and a new identity. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives me a new family and a new identity. When you come to faith in Christ, you are a new creation in Christ. Your sins have been nailed to the cross. You've been born into the family of God. Your identity is now in Christ, in Christ alone. Your struggles and your sins are under the blood of Jesus to the praise and glory of God. For me, as I think about my, my journey of discipleship, uh, the kind of discipleship I was initially exposed to, though I knew the, 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 I knew the truth that I had a new family and a new identity in Christ, but the kind of discipleship I was initially exposed to ignored the reality of and complexity and impact of my family of origin. Uh, on the way I, I saw myself and my relationships and my family and my place in the world, I, I ignored how what I experienced in my family, how, how that impacted the way that I thought about virtually everything. I didn't, didn't do the work of exposing the untrue things that were underlying my autopilot feature. I had an autopilot and I had a reflexive way in which I operated that was sort of just born out of kind of what was naturally modeled for me and I didn't think deeply about how I might be operating in ways externally that are built on unhealthy things that I learned early in my development. I didn't think about any of that. And I've learned since that the work of discipleship that is before us as, as disciples of Jesus, as someone who's been adopted into the family of Jesus, as someone who has a new identity in Christ, you and I 
do the work of denying self, of putting sin to death, of pursuing godliness, of confession and repentance. That's, we do that hard work. Our, our identity is in Christ. We don't do it as a way to earn identity. We already have a new identity. We're already saved. Our own name is already in the Lamb's book of life. But as someone who's in the family of God, I do that work to confess and repent and begin to walk in holiness. That's the work of discipleship. I think of the words of Paul to the Philippians, Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, he says Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I'm away, it's even more important. What's, what's his instructions to them then and us today? Work hard to show the results of your salvation. Other translations say, work out your salvation. Obeying God with deep reverence and fear for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. So when I reflect on my journey with Jesus, my journey of discipleship, I was a child of God. And yet I struggled with sin. Am I the only one? Okay, thank you. And it manifested in virtually every area of my life. In my marriage, in my relationships with others, in my vocation, in virtually every area of my life, I found myself operating with the same old thought patterns that I had always operated with. I lived and engaged with others as I always did. I operated on autopilot. I responded moment by moment, reflexively, relying on my own devices. I was learning great truths about the gospel, and yet it wasn't manifesting in interpersonal transformation in my life. For example, though I was born again into the family of God, I still looked a whole lot like the family that I had been raised in. Though I knew I was a new creature in Christ, and that's true, I was forgiven and redeemed, and yet I still handled conflict the Stevens way. Can you identify? Our family's conflict resolution strategy was pretty simple. He who can out-anger the other wins in the end. That was our philosophy in my family. I knew the Bible. I knew that it instructed me to be slow to anger, to be quick to listen and slow to speak. But the patterns I had seen and learned over the course of my life had wired me, hardwired me almost, to be quick to anger to speak aggressively and definitively in anger over the person I was in conflict with and to shout my way to victory. And unfortunately, my wife will tell you, this marked many of the early years of our marriage. Another example. Though I was a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, I was in the family of God, I still looked a whole lot like the family that I had been raised in. Now, I knew and I absolutely believed, I got involved in pastoral ministry at 26, though I knew I, and absolutely believed that my identity was in the completed work of Christ, and I knew that my salvation had nothing to do with my merit, it was by grace alone, through faith alone. I knew that, and I, and I reveled in that, actually. And yet, I was paralyzed by the thought that others would see me as incompetent or underachieving or unattractive, or dumb. In my family, you see, we measured success by accolades, and by beauty, and popularity, by athletic and social achievements. I was used to performing. And I knew my job as a Christian and as a pastor was to introduce people to Jesus. I knew that he was the only one that would save them. I knew that salvation was found in no one else alone. I knew that I was the messenger and he was the message. And yet... I found myself again and again positioning myself as Savior in the lives of those I was called to lead. I was orchestrating situations and relationships to where I was the hero, constantly looking for affirmation from others. Again and again, falling into patterns of codependency to the neglect of my family. I can remember after a couple years of pastoral ministry, this older gentleman who I worked with named Gary, I've talked about him multiple times in the past. Him and I were in the car, and he'd been observing me for a couple of years, maybe a year and a half at this point. 
And he began to just ask probing questions about my family. And when he found out that I came from a, a generationally uh, addiction, that my mom was an alcoholic, that I was raised in an alcoholic home, and he asked a bunch of probing questions about that. And I remember Gary saying to me, Paul, you're the adult child of an alcoholic parent. You realize that growing up with a parent who was an alcoholic has a huge impact on who you've become. I just never had heard anybody ever say that. Like, no, but I know Scripture. I have a new identity in Jesus, all true, but you still have these old tendencies that are residing within you. And so as he said that to me, I remember thinking, oh, so my tendency towards codependency didn't just fall from the sky. It was something I learned having an alcoholic mother that I was constantly cleaning up for, or we were constantly making allowance for. By God's grace, my mom has been sober for 40 years, by the way. So celebrate that, or 30 years. I never paused to consider the impact of my family of origin going back two or three generations. I never thought about how that impacted my life as a disciple of Jesus or who I was as a Christian. I never thought of the need to identify deeply ingrained family systems that I learned growing up. I never thought of the need to prof- of the way in which my family had, had prou- uh, profoundly impacted my day-to-day life, the struggles and the sins that I'd picked up. I never thought about how that so significantly impacted and influenced my thoughts and my views of self and my relationships and my convictions and my day-to-day way of operating, but they did. I like how Pete Scazzaro says it. He says, Jesus may live in your heart, but Grandpa still lives in your bones. And I see this in Abraham's family, don't you? And so, how does this manifest in your life? We're, we're engaging in a four-week sermon series to try to lean into this area of discipleship. How does this manifest in your life? I'm sure, I'm sure that you have recognized that certain family sins and struggles tend to be repeated from generation to generation, whether in your family or in other people's families, even among Christians. I'm sure you've seen these. The more sensational, easier to spot ones, like addiction or poverty or obesity or divorce or infidelity and fornication or wrath or overwork or greed, or laziness and apathy. I'm sure you've seen it generationally, maybe in your own family. And sometimes there's even a pendulum effect from generation to generation. I've seen this also. One generation might be defined by poverty or laziness, apathy. Then the next generation overcorrects and and creates an unhealthy obsession with wealth and a tendency towards overwork, which hardens the hearts of the children. So their generation is back over on this side of the equation. Or maybe, maybe one generation is defined by chaos or unpredictability or maybe even debauchery in the home. So the next generation overcorrects and creates an atmosphere of high control and legalism. Maybe you've seen that too. It's still a generational sin pattern, but just manifesting in a pendulum sort of way. Additionally, there's also the, the reality of the culture from which we are raised. The broader American culture, the culture of our region that we come from, our family culture, our ethnic culture, the church culture, those cultures also have a significant impact on the way we view ourselves and view the world. I mean, the American culture is one of fierce individualism. It's the story of American greatness. The story of Southern Oregon is one of fiercer individualism. That's really cool in some respects. It can be a cancer to our Christian faith in other respects. I was talking to Patricio, and he was telling me that in the Latino culture, there's this mentality among the men of, like, a machismo mentality, where it's like, you don't let them show your weakness, puff up your chest, be strong, be proud, which is a cancer to vulnerable, authentic, real community, to intimacy with the spouse. And I think of the church cultures. We've all come from different church cultures. If you come from a high-control church environment, that impacts the way you view God and the way you view the church. Uh, If you come from an environment where the senior pastor was Moses— 
where the senior pastor had all the answers, and he was a visionary leader who took a strong, uh, forceful control, you look for a king. And you want a strong leader that's going to tell you everything you need to know. If you come from a cult, Mormonism, or another cult where you have to know the doctrines, and you can't show weakness, and you have to live in perfection, and you can't be honest about your doubts, that has profoundly impacted you today. So can we just agree? Can we just agree that the sin issues in your life today, the struggles in your life today, the areas of continued struggle didn't just fall from the sky? Can we agree that your family and your culture may have something to do with who you've become? Though it's easy to identify the big sensational generational sins, as we chatted about this as a sermon development team and as a broader staff this week, we found ourselves um, as a staff really talking about the more nuanced ways the sins and struggles from our family of origin and from our culture manifest in our journey of discipleship. I mean, it rears its head in our professional lives. It rears its head in our families. I thought about it in, even in church life. Just some examples of what I've, what I've encountered and seen and tried to understand. It's like, I see stuff happening, and I'm just a dude. And so I don't often think real deeply about external behaviors and external things. I don't, I don't think as deep as I probably should. But you know what? what? What motivated that blow up? Or, or why did that person leave the church so angry? Or why is this person always upset when we talk about this particular issue? Or why am I so threatened by someone who seems smarter than me? It goes both ways, right? I think about it in the church culture. Like I think about, for example, this is just one example. I think about the, the family or the individual that just cannot seem to settle into a church for more than three or four years. They get involved in a church. They love it. They talk to their friends about it. They invite their friends. And they start to get settled into the church. And then all of a sudden you see them worshiping, worshiping at another church. Okay, what's, what's that about? Maybe they just were bored. Maybe they, well, they usually have a good excuse. Well, I didn't, they taught on this. I don't have that view. Or they did this, right? You know, what, something happened. I didn't like the music or whatever it may be. The preacher was ugly or whatever. And, and so they leave. But, you know, listen. And, and we don't ever ask questions, ever. Okay, later. See you later. Have fun at Table Rock or Mountain or wherever you're going. Could it be that, that I'm, I'm, just, I'm just speculating here, could it be that people find reasons to leave churches before they can truly be known by others? That it's a great defense mechanism never being held accountable and having someone speak truth into your life? Could that be it, maybe? Or, or what about the person who sits in the pews, loves Jesus, faithful attender, been here for years, and hears the calls and the opportunities and the invitations to serve, but never does? Maybe like in a really low-hanging fruit ways, the one-off ways, but never really serves in a substantive way. And they have lots of reasons why too busy, not qualified, and it's not the right season. But could it be that there's just a really unhealthy fear of not being good enough that lives inside that person? And they've not made it about Jesus, but in a weird sort of way, they've made it about themselves and their own insecurities. They're afraid if I serve or I step into a significant place of service, I might be found out. And you're just crippled by this lie that you're less than others. Have you ever paused and thought deeply to yourself, why am I am the way I am? Have you ever thought of that? Why do I do the things I do? Why am I the way that I am? Have you ever paused and thought deeply as a disciple of Jesus Christ, why do I continue to struggle with sin, knowing all that I know about who I am in Jesus Christ? Have you ever paused to consider the ways that you operate when you're on autopilot? When, when you're responding moment by moment reflexively and relying on your own devices, why you respond that way, why your thoughts go there, 
why this is your autopilot response to whatever. And so it's different for all of us. Let me just throw off a couple scenarios that maybe will cause you to think deeply about why you are the way that you are. And maybe there's an area in these questions that God, by his spirit, will bring conviction. Now, if, there's an, if I press in on a sensitive spot, don't throw a tomato at me. Maybe, maybe God is just trying to reveal some areas in your life of discipleship that he wants, he wants to be working in. So, for example, maybe today you need to look at your life and wonder, why do the opinions of people I barely know bear more weight in my life than the, opin- than the opinions of those closest to me? And might there be something in my family history that has informed that tendency? Maybe for you, you need to look at your life and wonder, why do I feel threatened by the successes of those around me? I've learned to mask it and not outright gossip, but why, when someone achieves in my midst, am I so threatened by that? Might there be something in your family history that speaks to that? Maybe you need to look at your life and wonder, why am I so afraid to be seen by others as weak or uninformed or incompetent? And without realizing it, why am I always resorting to one-upsmanship when I'm in conversation with someone? Maybe you need to ask the question or look at your life and wonder, why am I so terrified of abandonment? And how has that fear become a cancer to meaningful intimacy in my relationships? Could there be a reason in your family or in the origin story of your life as to why that's the case? Maybe you need to look at your life today and wonder, why do I feel the compulsion to control everything? Relationships, situations, broader scenarios. Why do I have a panic attack internally when I'm not in control of a situation? Could it be that you grew up in chaos and you just cannot handle chaos? Or maybe you gravitate toward chaos because you actually feel comfortable in chaos? Could it have something to do with your family? Maybe you need to look at your life and you need to wonder this morning, why am I so disproportionately crushed when I receive criticism from others? Even if it's constructive criticism spoken in love, why does it have such a crushing bearing on my soul? Maybe you look at your life today and you say, why do I struggle so desperately with jealousy in my romantic relationships? What is the seed of that tendency? Where did that come from? Maybe today you need to look at your life and you need to wonder, why is it so hard for me to express to others my true thoughts and my true feelings? Why am I so emotionally distant from the people I love the most? What am I afraid of? Why? Where did this come from, this tendency to bottle up and not speak what's really going on? And when I know I need to speak an affirming word to those I love the most, why can't those words come out of my mouth? Might there be something in your family story, your family history that has informed that? Lastly, one one more scenario. Maybe for you today, you need to look at your life and you need to wonder, when I have a conflict with someone, why do I immediately start building up a case in my mind against them, seeking to characterize them as all wrong or all bad, to discount them, to write them off, instead of rather working through the nuanced complexity of conflict and seeking to preserve relationships? Why do I get involved in a conflict and want to make someone dead to me? And my life is littered with bodies of people that I have written off and I have, I have poisoned relationship with. Might there be a reason in your family of origin story that you have those tendencies? Now, these are just a couple of examples. There's thousands of examples. We need to, before God, under the guidance of the Spirit, instructed by the Word, we need to ask ourselves, why am I the way that I am in those areas that are not, that are antithetical to me being a disciple of Jesus Christ? There's tendencies and patterns and sins and struggles, and they undermine our discipleship in Jesus. And if you and I continue to just just operate and do this natural thing, 
If we continually just want, if we say, hey, you know, I'm just going to respond reflexively in the moment. I'm going to rely on my own devices. I'm going I'm to operate in autopilot. We will continue to be a cancer to our discipleship in Jesus and our growing in his likeness. Seeking to, to work through these sins and struggles, let me tell you, is hard. And it's not quick, and it's not easy. It's really the life of the disciple to continually work through these areas of our life. It'd be much easier, I'm telling you right now, it would be much easier for you to say, that's who I am, deal with it. This is who I am, how I've always been, this is who you married, deal with it. But if the way you are is sinful and does not reflect Jesus, to continue as is would be willful sin against him. If a disciple is someone who has faith in Jesus, who is being formed into the image of Jesus, and who leads others to follow Jesus, I can't just say this is the way I am, deal with it. If the way I am is antithetical to the likeness of Christ, then to stubbornly refuse to address this sin is willful sin. So as disciples of Jesus, what are we, what are we to do? Well, you and I, we need to do the hard work of unearthing the root causes of our sins, of asking those hard questions. Why do I do the things I do? Why do I say the things I say? Why am I the way that I am? We, 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 we root out these, the, the sin in our life that is just so ingrained. We don't even realize it's sinful anymore. We need to confess that sin daily. Repent of that sin. Surrender ourselves over to a gracious God. Daily apply the gospel of grace in our lives. And in the power of the Holy Spirit... We daily put sin to death. We learn to live a new way as members of the family of Jesus and we live to the glory and to the praise of God. That's what we do. I'll say that again. How do we as disciples of Jesus address these in our lives? We need to do the hard work of unearthing the root cause of your sin. And when God makes it clear that this is sin in my life, we confess it. We repent of that sin. We surrender ourselves over to the graciousness of God. We daily apply the gospel of grace. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we daily put our sin to death. We learn to live a new way as a member of the family of Jesus to the praise and to the glory of God. Now listen. Unearthing the root cause of your sin is a lifelong endeavor. This is where Christian counseling comes in. This is where the counsel of brothers and sisters in Christ. This is where those dates when you say to your spouse, okay, we love each other, right? Yeah. We're for each other, right? Yeah. You want to see me glorify God? I want to see you glorify God with our lives, right? Okay. Can we do a little retreat? Can we prepare our hearts? And can we start, start having some real honest conversations about our marriage and about what you see in me that's painful, that's ungodly? And I know you're not attacking me. I know you're for me. But we need to have these conversations because I'm not good enough. It's not good enough to say I'm good enough. I want to grow. You know what's really interesting to me about, um, about Abraham it's really interesting to me the way the New Testament authors speak about him. I mean, he's, he, he lived some 2,000 years before Jesus, so 4,000 years ago from us, Abraham lived. And we know all the failures and all the shortcomings. We know his tendency towards deception and lying and self-protection. And yet, when we read the New Testament, he's mentioned 72 times in the New Testament, by the way. Abraham looms, looms large in the New Testament. When we read about him in the New Testament, the New Testament authors speak of him in glowing terms. So interesting to me. In fact, if you go to the first book of the New Testament, the first verse of the first book of the New Testament, whose name do we see? We see Abraham. Matthew 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That blessing that God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that blessing that would be a blessing for all the nations of the earth, it was Jesus. And God's promise would not be thwarted by the foolishness of Abraham. 
The New Testament authors talk about the belief of Abraham, and Abraham believed God, and it was counted as righteousness. Listen to what Paul writes in Galatians 3, verses 6 through 9 about Abraham. This is so incredible to me. He says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know, know, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, that's you and me, and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying to Abraham, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of the faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Paul tells us that when God made a covenant promise with Abraham, it was the gospel being preached to Abraham in Genesis 12. And that you and I, as men and women of faith, born into the family of God, we are, he, we are, we are, we are sons of Abraham. He is father. Abraham had many sons, remember? Many sons had father Abraham. I'm one of them, and so are you. So what are we supposed to do? Let's go praise the Lord, right? You guys know that song. But this is incredible that the gospel was preached to Abraham 2,000 years before Jesus was born. And if you look at the book of Hebrews that we've been in for the last three or four months, it describes Abraham in this way. It says that as Christians, we are offspring of Abraham. We're sons of Abraham. It says Abraham patiently waited and obtained the promise. It said that Abraham, he faithfully tithed to Melchizedek. And then once you get to the great chapter of faith in, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, have you ever heard of the way the author of Hebrews speaks of Abraham? Hebrews 11 verses 8 through 10. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as a in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him for the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder was God. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And ultimately, his life is characterized by the gospel that he believed and the faith that he exemplified. His life is not characterized by his failures or his family of origin or his tendency to deceive and lie and, and self-protect. His, his, his legacy is a man of faith who responded in faith to the gospel. Abraham's identity, as far as the New Testament writers are concerned, is one of belief. He is Father Abraham, and his identity is rooted in the gospel. And he is righteous because of his faith in the gospel. So Abraham believed God. And he believed that God would do exactly what he said he was going to do, and he did. And we know the story. We talked about it last week as we were unpacking Hebrews 6. This incredible moment in, in Abraham's life, I referred to it at the beginning of the teaching. He's on Mount Moriah. God tells him to go there and sacrifice his son. And you're expecting the deceiving, lying, self-protecting Abraham to rear his ugly head, but he doesn't. Because the deceiving, lying, self-protecting Abraham, after each of his failures, he saw the faithfulness of God and the grace of God poured out on his life in spite of his shortcomings. And so in the ultimate moment of testing in Abraham's life, on top of Mount Moriah, as he's laying his son on an altar, as God has asked him to sacrifice his son, he raises the knife, he's going to do it. Because he trusts in the character of God. And if there ever was a time I would resort to deception and lying and self-protection, it would be when my son is laying on an altar. But he doesn't. We're not, and this doesn't mean we elevate Abraham. It means we elevate the God in whom he serves because he is a gracious God who showed up in Abraham's life at every turn, even when he failed. It's an incredible story. I can't fathom this moment. Finally, after seeing God respond to his foolishness with faithfulness, 
after seeing God be faithful when Abraham wasn't, after seeing God redeemed all of his stupid decisions and, and mistakes, that redemptive activity in his life did not go unnoticed. And for once, Abraham didn't just do the natural thing. He didn't resort to autopilot. He didn't reflexively respond to the moment. No, he trusted that God was redemptive. He trusted that he was a resurrecting God. Look at Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19. Here's how the author of Hebrews characterizes what happened to Abraham on that day on that mountain in Genesis 22. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And he who received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to raise him from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham had a resurrection faith in this moment on top of Mount Moriah. And that's how the New Testament interprets his story. Notice how his past sins did not impede God's grace in his present. Certainly Abraham's sins were an impediment to his joy throughout the course of his life, but God redeemed those sins. And also notice that God didn't remove all the struggles for Abraham. Abraham's, he faced challenges God allowed Abraham to face those challenges and struggle through hard situations in life. And In fact, I would make the argument that they were the very means by which God trained godliness in Abraham. Had he not faced those challenges in Egypt and with the, and with the Philistine king and, and with Hagar and with infertility, that he wouldn't have had an opportunity to, to, to stretch his faith, to, to fail, confess and repent and come back to God. It was through the struggles that God formed godliness in Abraham. Our gracious God can and does use this for his glory. He redeems our family of origin for his glory. It's actually God's grace that he allows us to confront sin and struggle as a part of our own sanctification. And so then the question, the last question goes, what does redemption look like in your life and in mine? What does redemption look like in your life and in mine? Well, here's the last thing I want you to write down. Put to death the sins and struggles of your family and culture and learn to live in light of the new family and identity in Christ. That's what we do. As Christians, that's what the process of discipleship unearths. We learn to put to death the sins and struggles of my family and culture, and we learn to live in light of our new family and new identity in Christ. So we're going to give you a a workbook this week. Now, listen, I I know you're not used to getting homework at church, and I understand that. We we've worked really hard at trying to provide a, a resource for you, a meaningful resource for you to take home. To set aside a time, I'm asking you to set aside 45 minutes or an hour. I know you don't ever have this happen on a Sunday morning, but I'm asking you to set aside 45 minutes to an hour sometime in the next seven days to work through this resource, to work through this workbook. Would you please consider this? And in that workbook, we're going to ask you to do a handful of things. We're going to ask you to meditate on 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 19, which, which speak about what it looks like for us in light of the gospel to address the reality of the past and embrace the, the hope of the future. We have an exercise for you to do that. And in this resource, we're going to ask you to ask yourself some questions. It's, a, it's, it's really the application of my sermon, if you will. There's hard copies in the Heritage at Home Center. It's going to be on all of our digital area. You can download it digitally everywhere at, Epico, or at, Her- at Heritage. But it's, it's the application component of our sermon. And, and so the work we're going to ask you to do this week, we're going to ask you initially to ask some questions about your life. Maybe you need to reach out to a, a parent or a grandparent or an uncle or someone who might need you to understand the generational reality of where you come. But we're going to ask you to ask questions like, 
Has anyone in your family struggled with substance abuse or other addictive behaviors? We're going to ask you to ask questions like, how, how did your family define success in life? These are just examples. One of the questions we're going to ask you to consider this week is, is was your family a safe and inviting place to discuss feelings, especially negative ones? By the way, it's really interesting to have children in my home when we have these conversations because uh, they don't hold back. And I'm uh, just going to say that. We're going to ask you to ask questions like, how did your family handle conflict? Did your, did your family fight it out real time? Was there flight? Did you freeze up? Did you bury it? Love to know those. These are important questions to ask. You're going to ask the question like, were there any family members seen as heroes or heroines? Were there any that were black sheep and that were blamed? Why or why not? One of the questions we're going to ask you to consider is, is has your family experienced traumatic events? And my guess is it has. I've heard those called earthquake events, and they radically impact your, your, your life. Sudden death, long illness, stillbirths, bankruptcy, you name it. Were these events openly discussed or mourned or ignored? So we're going to ask you just to consider some questions. It's all in the resource. Please grab a hard copy in the Heritage at Home Center or go to our website and download it. You can download it from the app that we have today. We're going to, make it, we're going to send out an email. Everyone has access to this resource. So we're going to ask you in the process to identify patterns of sin and brokenness in your family going back two or three generations. And then we're inviting you to do the hard work of identifying how God is at work in the good and in the bad, and in the ugly in your, of your family of origin. And how it might be that God is, is doing a redemptive work in your life from the roots up by the power of his gospel. Again, I want to remind you, and, and for some of you, this is going to feel like um, disloyal to dare speak about the secrets of the family. Again, this is between you and the piece of paper. You don't have to share with anybody else. In fact, I would caution you to be careful who you share the results of this workbook with. I would encourage you that are married to invite a spouse if you feel comfortable, but I would also be very cautious. This isn't something you broadcast. And for some of you, I know, for some of you it's going to feel like I'm not, I can't expose, I can't, I can't expose my family like this. You're not exposing your family to others. You're working in your own life through this process. I encourage you to do it. Be discerning as you go through this workbook, please. It may kick up some dust that may cause you some strong emotions, it may, may, may compel you to, to reach out or act out in a moment of weakness. I would encourage you not to do that. Be patient with the process. Make sure to operate in healing ways as you are working through this stuff. Now listen, you and you alone are responsible to address these issues. If you're willing to do the hard work, if you're willing to go back in order to go forward in health and in light of the gospel, you'll be a blessing to those around you. You can literally change the trajectory or the generational patterns in a family. You can be a blessing to future generations. You can be a transitional figure. You have the opportunity to lay new foundation for future generations as a disciple of Jesus Christ. We define discipleship and heritage as someone who has faith in Jesus, someone who's growing in the likeness of Jesus, and someone who's leading others to follow Jesus. Think about that. I think about that little kid with my eyes fixed on my dad, watching how he walked, how he worked, how he talked, how he interacted with others, wanting to be just like him. What if our eyes were fixed on Jesus? as disciples of Jesus? What if we eyes were fixed on him and we begin to spend time with Jesus? We were with him, devotionally with him in prayers, with him in our thought life. And as we spend time with Jesus, what if by the power of his spirit, he, he continues that redemptive, transformative work that only he can do in our lives? And we begin to, to look more like Jesus. We begin to be formed more into his likeness so that when we lift up our eyes and we engage with those around us, we begin to engage more like Jesus and less like the family from which we came, but more like the family from which we now belong. Let's pray. Father, I, I know that this discussion um, is hard 
for some of us. God, I know that there are men and women in this room who uh, have really great family lives and they're grateful for the spiritual legacy that they inherited from their parents and their grandparents and, and, and we celebrate those legacies today, God, we really do. Praise God, it is your grace. And God, I know that there's people here today who have some real significant festering wounds in their life when it comes to the families from which they, they, they came. And, and I know that that's hard to, to, to try to go back and meddle in, in some of this stuff. God, would you be gracious? And would you be kind? God, would you give guidance by your spirit? Would you bring comfort? God, our hope as a church is just simply, we want to we be, be disciples who not only have a, a, a faith and a trust in you, we want to be disciples, God, who, who are being shaped and formed and sanctified day by day more and more into the likeness of your son, Jesus. And God, we want to exemplify and reflect this Jesus to the world around us, beginning with those who we love the most, but even our neighbors and friends who don't know you. So God, you've got to do this work in us. Help us to be faithful, to do the work you've called us to do. And God, may, may you help us to, to, to understand what it means that the gospel of Jesus Christ has given us a new family and a new identity. God, help us understand what it means to put to death the sins and the struggles in my family and in my culture, and yet instead learn to, to live our day-to-day lives in light of the new family and the new identity we have in your son, Jesus. And we love you and we ask you to guide us in this process. And God, ultimately, we ask you to grow our church corporately in godliness. God, grow us in depth and in maturity. May we be a church that accurately reflects Jesus to the world around us. We love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.